You may be seated, and as you're seated, I invite you to turn this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll be reading verses 8 through 15, and as you turn there to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I have to say I'm actually excited that I ran out of time last week because uh, the things I was going to say last week I think are going to be much uh, better said this Sunday, I hope. Uh, I'm praying, and you can, I think, join me in that prayer. Uh, So we're talking about generosity. We talked last week about how generosity in giving and generosity in forgiveness are connected in our lives because they are connected in the life of God, and they are connected in God's life to us in Christ. Uh, This Sunday, we're going to talk about how, how we learn generosity by joining God in his giving. And the way we're going to unpack that is by looking at the problem that the Corinthians' generosity was running into. Uh, I think we've all had the experience of watching someone else receive a gift and then being upset that they got it and we didn't. Envy, which is wishing that you were blessed instead of someone else, is a common sin. And it's one of the main things that stands in the way of being open-handed and thus open-hearted in generosity. Jealousy is another. Uh, So I don't think that jealousy and envy are exactly the same things because unlike envy, jealousy doesn't want to keep blessings from other people. Jealousy doesn't say, "I, uh, I should be blessed and you should be cursed. Instead, jealousy says, I'm more deserving of more gifts than you are, which is different. Jealousy isn't saying, I deserve all the blessings and you deserve none, which is really what envy says. And to Christians, that should be an obviously sinful desire. No, instead, jealousy says, I deserve more. You deserve less. And that distinction is important because Envy is more likely to produce violence. I deserve it all, so I'm going to take it all. Jealousy is more likely to produce self-righteousness. I'm better than them. And so I have a right to feel anger over the things that you have and a right to feel justified in withholding good things from you. It's only fair. Both are sins. Both stop generosity and both are responses to seeing others receive gifts and blessings. Uh, We'll talk more about this, but I think one or both of these sins is active in the Corinthian church. And maybe it's active in our church. Uh, I hope not. But I do know, and we should all know, that jealousy and envy are certainly active in our hearts. They are part of us as human beings. And so the question then actually becomes, how does God deal with jealousy and envy? How does God meet our envy, our jealousy, and our fear, which is connected to them, with his transforming grace? That's the question. And the answer I've already given is, we learn generosity by joining God in his giving. But we could put it another way. God transforms us by giving us gifts, even when we're jealous and envious, and then inviting us to respond by joining him in his giving. But why it works that way, how it looks, that's what we're going to explore this morning from our passage. 
And we're going to do that by looking first at the free will diaconal offering being connected and I prom collected. And I promised last week uh, that point will be short, and it will be. Uh, then two, uh, God, how God responds to envy, jealousy, discontentment, and fear. We're going to look at that by uh, looking at the story from Exodus 16 that Paul quotes at the end of our passage. You'll see that. And then third, we'll look at how God wants us to respond to his generosity. And then finally, we'll just conclude by saying that God's gifts are for our blessing and transformation. So let's read 2 Corinthians 8, 8 to 15. Let's pray, and then we'll begin our reflection. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. Let's hear God's word once again this morning. I say this not as a command, that is, to give, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Thus far the reading of God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we want to know from it and through it, how to be generous like you and how to join you in giving. But Lord, we know that this will be impossible unless your spirit goes out with your word to give us minds to understand, ears to hear, and hearts to believe your word. Father, we pray that you would do this. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we pray this through Christ Jesus, our Lord's name. Amen. Uh, so the first thing I want to look at is why Paul is collecting what we would call a diaconal free will offering. Uh, so it's diaconal because it's clearly about helping people in need. In verse 4, just earlier in our passage, Paul calls, calls it an offering for the relief of the saints. And in the Bible, diaconal offerings are clearly about providing for both missionaries and also for people's needs, their spiritual relief and their physical relief. And it's a free will offering because, as Paul says in verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command. And then later on in chapter 9, verse 7, he'll say that each one must give as he has decided in his heart. And whatever one thinks about whatever, whether tithing remains an ongoing command in the new covenant or not, and my plan is to touch on that a little bit next week in chapter 9, I think it's clear that this request for additional giving that isn't produced by sort of obedience to a command or by force, but is produced by love and desire is Paul's point. It's an offering that's supposed to come from your own will to love others out of an abundance of generosity. Now that said, why is Paul collecting it? 
There's two general opinions on this. The first and most common one is that there was a famine in Jerusalem and Paul was taking up an offering to help feed the church there. And the second option is that there really wasn't a special occasion and that this was just a regular practice that the Apostle Paul had to help the poor throughout the churches of Jesus Christ in the known world. And since I promised the first point was going to be short this week, here's what I think. Uh, brass tacks. I think the first option that there was a famine in Jerusalem is just not a great one. Uh, it's rooted in a, an interpretation of Acts 11 where Agabus prophesied by the Holy Spirit that there would be a famine throughout the Roman Empire. And then the apostles decided to take up a special offering for Judea from all of the churches, probably because Judea was the poorest region in their area. And so the problem with seeing this as the context is that the famine happened before Paul's work in Corinth and Macedonia occurred by like years. The offering is for Judea and not for Jerusalem. There's no mention of a famine ever again in Acts. And other than the word relief, Paul never talks about anything that looks like famine in 2 Corinthians. So I don't think the context is relief for people who are starving. And here's why that's important. If you hear that there is a famine and people are starving to death and someone comes to a congregation of Jesus, whether that's us or the Corinthians, and they ask for help, and we respond with selfish, tight-fisted, grumpy, bitter complaints about it not being fair, that doesn't make any sense, right? Like, why would you be afraid of being treated unfairly in that context? Like, why would you be bothered by the idea that someone who is starving through no fault of their own is getting more than you, which is the whole issue of fairness in the first place? Right? That's the context, isn't it? It would be so weird. What do you mean unfair? It's a famine. Like, they didn't cause the famine? Like, what is wrong with you? No, I think the best argument, and the one that I think accounts for Paul's talking about unfairness and for why he gently but firmly calls on them to give this diaconal offering, is that caring for the poor in the church was standard practice in all the churches that Paul planted and in all the churches of the first century. And here's the reality about that practice. Poverty is polarizing. From the very beginning of Israel's existence until today, God recognizes that sometimes people are poor through no fault of their own. And sometimes people are poor through their own bad choices. And sometimes, maybe most of the time, you can't always tell which. And almost all the time, there's a mixture of the two. And when your gifts go to those who made bad choices, don't we feel the sting of jealousy? I mean, we call it unfairness. Paul uses that term here too. But I think what he's really getting at is a sort of gentle way of talking about jealousy. Why should they get something they don't deserve from me who does deserve it? I mean, I'm not against helping those who really need it, but I don't think helping, uh, but I don't think helping those who don't really need it is something I want to get on board with. And since I don't know the community of the people where this is going to, because this is not for the Corinthian church, and since Judeans and Macedonians aren't as good with money as we are, that maybe sounds like contemporary political debates today, right among the states, I don't necessarily trust their judgment. So I'm going to hold back because it's not fair. What if it's used in an unfair or wrong way? 
I think that's the context. And it explains why Paul uses the Old Testament story he does. Because if the issue is just providing for people in a famine and addressing obviously unreasonable selfishness, like why not pick the story that he's been riffing off of this whole time, right? Deuteronomy 15, you shall not look begrudgingly on your brother, but you shall open wide your hand to him. He doesn't use that story or any of the other number of stories that he could easily pick from or just outright commands. Instead, he chooses an example that has surprised me for years and that I think I finally understand, Exodus 16, where the issue in Exodus 16 isn't poverty, but fear, discontentment, jealousy, and I would say maybe even envy. And here we're going to move to our second point, and I have fulfilled my promise to you now, uh, which is how God responds to envy, discontentment, and fear. So at the end of the section in verse 15, after talking about how fairness is found in the Corinthians giving out of their abundance to those who do not have an abundance, he quotes Exodus 16:18. As it is written, he says, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And rather than take the time to read all of Exodus 16, I'm going to retell it for you and give you some of the money quotes, pun intended. Uh, so here's the context. In Exodus 14, God saves Israel by parting the Red Sea. He brings Israel through on dry ground, and he drowns Pharaoh's army in it as they chase after them. Exodus 15 is the song of Moses in Israel that they sang about their salvation. It's also about God showing Israel that he can and will Give them water in the wilderness. Then Exodus 16. Israel has been traveling in the desert for a few weeks, maybe even a month or two. It's hot, it's barren, and it's hard work. They are carrying their belongings and the gold and the jewels and everything else that they brought with them from Egypt. They're pushing carts they're carrying babies. They're helping the elderly. They're eating the food that they brought with them from Egypt. And there's probably people who are trying to hunt for more food, but there's a lot of people. So it's extremely hard. They're hungry. They're tired. And like we do, when we get hungry and tired, we thank God and take a nap. No, they got mad and they got grumbly, right? They got hangry. Which is why Israel says in chapter 16, verse 3, and I'm just going to read it for you here. He says, Israel says, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you, that's Moses and Aaron, have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So clearly Israel is discontent. They're clearly tired, hence the idea of sitting you know, as opposed to like walking around. I also think they're clearly afraid and they're clearly either envious or jealous of their past life and what they and the Egyptians used to have, which I know is crazy. But remember, we're all capable of rewriting the pain of the past when we're suffering in the present. And notably, though, Jesus doesn't respond to their discontentment and jealousy with anger, with frustration. Instead, he tells them, 
through Moses, he says this. I'll read it for you. This is verse 11, if you happen to be there. I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, that's Moses, say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Exodus 16 is the story of the manna and the quail. And God responds to his family's ungrateful, jealous, unbelieving response to salvation by making quail fall from the sky and by making delicious bread out of the dew of the ground. And now while we can probably see how this story connects to the idea of like grace being given to the undeserving and the ungrateful, what does it have to do with fairness and poverty? Well, here's what I think. I think it's Paul has in mind the connection to this context from the order of events that happen in the passage. So here's what happens. God tells Israel to go out into the morning and gather the bread and the quail. And they're to gather one omer per person in each family. And omer is about uh, two liters. So it's a two liter of pop or soda or coke or wherever you're from in the country. So that's fair, right? God says, I'm going to send enough quail and enough manna that every individual, man, woman, and child, will get an omer for themselves, two liters worth, every day. Now listen to this. After Israel gets up the next morning and they see the quail and the manna, this is what happens. I'm going to read it. Pay attention. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Did you catch that they only measured the quail and the manna after they gathered it? What the text says is that Israel went out, and some of them clearly tried their best to guess at what an omer would look like. But some of them, those who gathered much, I think clearly tried to take more. I think they, the text actually invites some reflection here. And in light of the way that God calls us to reflect on this text through 2 Corinthians 8, maybe we can say that those who gathered more, those who gathered much, maybe they were jealous. Maybe they were envious. Like, why does that family get as much or more than my family. I mean, they have one more person, but we do twice as much work. Or there are three of us and three of them, but they're a mom, dad, and a baby. We're a mom, dad, and a 15-year-old boy. Like, why do they get the same amount as we do? They gathered much. And some of them gathered little. And I take these to be people who are either trying to be selfless I'm going to suffer to make sure that you have enough, which also in this context shows faithlessness in Jesus' ability to count, right? Like, I don't think Jesus is going to know how many people are in Israel. I better take less so that little Timmy gets his two liter of quail because Jesus might have missed him. I mean, that's really what it's saying. I also think there are some people who just have a hard time receiving grace, right? Don't some of us think that we just don't deserve, because we don't deserve God's gifts, we need to try and earn them. 
I don't deserve this from God, so I'm going to wait until I do deserve it. I'm going to push away the goodness of Jesus that he wants to give me so that like one day I'll be worthy of it. Uh, I don't know if we have a word for this. This is like jealousy inside out, right? It's like jealousy says, I deserve more than you. This says, I deserve less. False humility. That's the word. False humility. Uh, now notice that after they gathered, that it was then measured person by person. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And for our purposes this morning, here's the point that I think Paul is calling us to draw from this passage. God provides for the needs of all of his people. And he does so in a way that selfishness and false humility, or real humility, just can't stand in the way. The way God gives blessings and provisions takes into account the kinds of people he knows are receiving to them. And he still gives each one exactly what they need. You see, God responds to envy, jealousy, discontentment, and fear by showing us that his grace truly is not only sufficient, but generous and wise. Okay, back to 2 Corinthians 8 and on to our third point, which is how God wants us to respond to his generosity. So Paul takes this logic, this view of the world and of our lives that God clearly gives us, that Jesus gives in such a way that his generosity is wise and takes account of all of us. And he applies this now to a situation where we don't have manna appearing every morning with the dew. And if you have that, I would love to taste some. So bring some to church next Sunday. Uh, no, we don't have that, right? But we do have all of us God's provisions for life, money, food, clothing, shelter, love, community, right? All the things and more that biologists say you don't need, but the Bible says you do, right? All you need is food, clothing, and shelter, and security. Everything else is not a need. I get the utility of saying that to when your children want to buy a new toy or whatever, but like that is just not the way God looks at your, don't look at your life through the Bible. It's not good that man was alone. God says we need more than those things, a lot more. What we especially need is the fullness that's found in Jesus, right? And Jesus gives us that abundance of his need-fulfilling love in a very generous way. And now here's the reality. Some of us have more of certain blessings than others. What Paul calls in verse 14, your abundance at the present time. And here Paul brings in this idea of some having more. Maybe in light of our, the story of the manna, we could say some have gathered more. Some got it exactly right, and some got it out of jealousy or envy. However it is, he then connects that concept to the way God provides his blessings for everyone in wisdom. And he does that to make two points. The second point, which is what we're going to look at in depth next week in chapter 9, is that because of the way God gives... If you give more, you do not need to fear having less. 
God knows exactly the kinds of people who are taking and receiving, and he takes that into account. That's chapter 9. That's next Sunday, Lord willing. But the, the first point is when we give, we are joining God as his partners in giving his gifts to his people. We participate in the way that God wisely and generously gives blessings to his saints. Paul will actually say outright in Philippians that giving tithes and offerings is one big way that we accept God's invitation to partner with him in bringing the gospel to the world. Isn't it an amazing idea that God invites you on as a partner in the gospel? And by putting these two things together, I think we can then join God and trust God in the way that God distributes his good gifts. You see, we don't need to fear unfairness because Jesus will give each of his people what they need if they deserve it and if they don't. And if they think they need more or they think they need less or if we think they need less and we need more, God knows what we need. Those who gathered much had nothing left over. Those who gathered little had no lack. So to bring this to our conclusion, our final point is God's gifts are to bless us and transform us. And so here's one application from all this that I want us to walk away with this morning. Jealousy, envy, discontentment, fear, they all stem from a lack of trust in God from a lack of trust in God's wisdom, a lack of trust in his generosity, and in his grace. And in the case of jealousy and envy, they also stem from a belief that we have correctly evaluated our situation and your situation, that we know what we deserve, and that we know what someone else deserves. And by calling us to give generously to the poor, within our congregation and to other churches, some of whom we don't know, and I think to our communities too, what God is calling us to do, do is have faith that Jesus really does know what we all need, that he has the power to give us all that we need, that he has the wisdom to do it, and that we can give generously without fear that people will wind up with more than they need, and that we will wind up with less and be harmed. I know that kind of trust can be hard to show because it also involves repenting of the idea that our judgments are more accurate than God's judgments. But that's why God calls it faith. Because kids, kids, what does faith mean? Faith means... Trust, thank you. Extra candy. You guys want to try it again? You get extra candy? What does faith mean? Trust. trust, extra candy. That's right. Faith means trust. We are being called to trust that jealousy and envy are the result of misplaced judgments and that what we need to do is trust Jesus to be generous and wise and kind because God is generous and wise and good and faithful. And as we know, it's because of his generosity and his wisdom and his goodness and his faithfulness 
because those have overflowed to us in Christ so that we are all rich beyond measure. And so we can and we should freely from the heart in trust, right, by faith, give to each other, be generous with the confidence that that Jesus and his ways of living in the church will work out to the meeting of all the needs of the saints and that whoever gathered more will have nothing left over, that whoever had gathered little will have no lack, that God will bless us sufficiently in Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that um, you give knowing exactly the kinds of people who are receiving your gifts. You know what we need. Uh, You know our situations. You know our hearts. Please help us to trust in your knowledge and in your wisdom and your generosity. And please help us to join you in giving to each other so that we can grow in confidence that you know what you're doing and that you do all things well. And that it truly is a great blessing to be called as your partners in showing generosity to each other in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.